Father, as Stephanie told me to get up there, Dad, get up there, Dad, I pray that, God, I wouldn't be here alone, um, but I, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be with us, God, uh, to help help my words, help this text. Uh, I, I just do believe in the power of Your Word and would pray that You would help this morning as we... We just unlock your Bible, and it's not, it's not me, O oh Lord, this morning. It's the, the Word and the power of the Scriptures, and we pray that you would help, um, help in those ways. Uh, we do pray just for your help to follow the instructions of this text. We might be doers of the Word, not merely hearers only, who delude themselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once upon a time on the banks of a great river north in Germany lay a town called Hamlin. The citizens of Hamlin were honest folk who lived contentedly in their gray stone houses. As the years went by, the the city grew very rich. Then one day, an extraordinary thing happened to disturb the peace. Hamlin had always had rats. Lots of them too. But they had never been a danger because the cats had always solved their problem in the usual way, by killing them. But all at once, the rats began to multiply. And in the end, the the black sea of rats swarmed the whole town. First, they attacked the barns and storehouses. And then, for lack of anything better, they gnawed the wood, cloth, or anything. The only thing they didn't gnaw at was the metal. And the terrified citizens all flocked to plead with the town councilors to free them from the plague of rats. But the council had for a long time been sitting in the mayor's room trying to think of a plan themselves. We need an army of cats, but all the cats were dead. Well, we'll put down poisoned food then, but most of the food was gone. And even poison did not stop the rats. It just can't be done without help, said the mayor. Just then, while the citizens milled around outside, there was a loud knock at the door. Who can that be? The city fathers wondered, Uneasily, mindful of the angry crowds. And who is at the door? Kids, you know who's at the door? The Pied Piper was, right. Uh, to their surprise, to the tall, thin man, dressed in brightly colored clothes, with a long feather in his cap, waving a gold pipe at them. I've freed other towns of beetles and bats, the stranger announced, and for a thousand florins, I'll rid you of your rats. A thousand florins, exclaimed the mayor. We'll give you fifty thousand if you succeed. And at once the stranger hurried away, saying, It's late now, but at dawn tomorrow there'll be no rats left in Hamlin. The sun was still below the horizon when the sound of a pipe wafted through the streets of Hamlin, and the Pied Piper slowly made his way through the houses, and behind them flocked the rats. Out they scampered from the doors, windows, gutters, Rats of every size, all after the piper, and played the stranger marched down the river and straight into the water up to his middle, and behind him swarmed the rats, and everyone was drowned and swept away by the current. By the time the sun was high in the sky, there was not a single rat in the town, and there was even greater delight at the town hall until the piper tried to claim his payment. Fifty thousand florins, exclaimed the counselors. Never! A thousand florins at least, cried the piper angrily. But the mayor broke in. The rats are all dead now and they can never come back. So be grateful for 50 florins or you'll not even get that. His eyes flashing with rage. The Pied Piper pointing a threatening finger at the mayor. You'll bitterly regret ever breaking your promise, he said. And then vanished. 
A shiver of fear ran through the counselors, but the mayor shrugged and said excitedly, we saved 50,000 florins. That night, freed from the nightmare of the rest, the citizens of Hamlin slept more soundly than ever, and when the strange sound of piping wafted through the streets at dawn, only the children heard it. Drawn as by magic, they hurried out of their house, and again the, the Pied Piper paced through the town. This time it was the children of all sizes that flocked at his heels to the sound of his strange piping. And the long, loud procession soon left the town and made its way through the wood across the forest until it reached the foot of a huge mountain. When the piper came to a dark rock, he played his pipe even louder and a great door creaked open. Beyond lay a cave and in trooped the children behind the Pied Piper. When the last child had gone into darkness, the door cracked shut. A great landslide came out of the mountain, blocking the entrance to the cave forever. And only one little lame boy escaped his fate. And it was he who told the anxious children, searching for their citizens, told the anxious citizens, searching for their children, what had happened. And no matter what the people did, the mountain gate never gave up its victims. And many years were to pass before the merry voices of other children would ring through the streets of Hamlin. But the memory of the harsh lesson lingered in everyone's heart and was passed down from father to son through the centuries. Well, so reads the tale, Grimm's fairy tale of the Pied Piper. Many of you. And that's primarily a lesson about being faithful to those who labor for you. If you have the money, pay them what is due. But among other things, and perhaps what we all remember most of the Pied Piper, is his power. The power of influence that he has to get rats drowned in the river, to bring children into a cave, leading many astray and some even to their death. The Pied Piper really shows us that, that even a leader can lead people to their death. Down through the centuries... People have been led to their death following false teachers. The days of Moses, Moses, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram followed in rebellion against Moses and they had a whole swarm of people and then the earth opened up and ate them all. They died following their faithful leaders. The days of Jehoshaphat, Aram, king of Israel, followed the counsel of his false prophets contrary to Micaiah's counsel who told the right thing, but he followed the false prophet's counsel and died by an arrow shot. In the days of Jeremiah, people refused to believe him, rather the false prophets who were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And many who followed these false prophets died at the hand of the Babylonians. The lure of false teaching can be strong. Seventy-five people died following David Koresh. More than 900 people died following Jim Jones to their death in Jonestown. And what I find amazing is that even when a, a teacher is proved to be false, People oftentimes have this attachment to him that, that will still follow him. I mean, case in point, Harold Camping has failed twice on predicting the end of the world, and yet he still has a swarm of followers believing that the world will end on October 21st. It's always been the reality. It's always be the reality. Our text this morning is he's talking about spiritual leaders and false teachers, and you might be carried away by them, but we need to remember our true teachers and follow our our true teachers rather than being followed away by false teachers. So if you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles, Hebrews thirteen, seven through fourteen. And we're going to deal with religious leaders. Who should you follow and who should you not follow? It's really the question of our task text. Well, let's look at verse seven. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is same yesterday and today and forever. 
Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, and not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Here's my first point. is verse 7. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. Remember those who led you who spoke the Word of God to you and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. This is a call to remember faithful men who lived before you and you saw how they lived. They led you in spiritual matters. right? It says there they spoke the Word of God to you. They modeled a life of faith and they lived a life of integrity. And to remember them, the call here is to imitate them. And when it comes to false teacher, really the most important matter in life is, is their life, right? When Jesus spoke about false prophets that would come to you, they'd come in sheep's clothing on the outside, but inwardly they'd be ravenous wolves. And He said in that context, Matthew 7.16, you will know them by their fruits. In other words, you can identify a false teacher by the way that he lives. You just look at someone and you say, is fruit, is spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, evident in his life? What comes out of that man's mouth? What sort of attitudes does he have, especially when challenged and confronted by others? How does he handle finances? How's his marriage? How does he manage his family? If his family is a wreck, he has little patience with others, lashes out in anger when confronted, claims to be a spiritual leader of others, then you may very well say, but this is a, this is a false teacher here because there's no fruit. On the contrary, though, if the marriage is solid, children well-behaved, finances under control, you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in such a man. You see good fruit in his life. You hear good teaching from his lips. You can say, well, he's a a worthy man to follow. He is a, a genuine spiritual leader. And that was the case with those who first led these Hebrew people in verse 7. Remember those who led you. He was encouraging them to follow these people. Because these people are well. Consider, as it says in verse 7, the result of the conduct. In other words, think about what happened to them in their life. Right? Consider it. It's to to think about it. It's to ponder on it. Consider how they lived. Consider how they died. And look what happened to them. And look at how it ended. And did it end well? If it ended well, then go ahead and imitate their faith. They are worthy to follow. And one of the things you need to realize here in Hebrews is that When these words were written, it was a day of persecution. Look back at chapter 10, verse 32. Talking to the people. He said, remember the former days. Now, this is a carte blanche letter. It's not written to one particular church. This is written to scattered Jews everywhere in the early first century. He says, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle, through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. In other words, he's saying this. Remember when you heard the truth the first time? Remember when it is that you first saw and came to realize really that Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Covenant? Those weren't easy days, were they? They were hard days. 
They were days of persecution. They were days of great suffering. Those who embraced Jesus were ridiculed and, and, and they were, believers were being pressed. You're being pressed to deny your faith, particularly by your keen kinsmen. Enemies came and even, as it says in verse 34, took away your property. But that's okay, you said, because I've got a better possession in heaven. Nevertheless, it's a difficult time these people came to faith. And what happened to the general populace happened in greater degree than to the spiritual leaders. You remember what happened to the leaders? Just a survey of Acts tells you that of some of the spiritual leaders who faced some difficult times in Jerusalem. Peter and John were taken in custody and flogged in order not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Later, Stephen would stand up and speak the Gospel and was stoned to death. In sitting in Antioch, a person, persecution was instigated against Paul and Barnabas. They were promptly driven out of the district. So, next they went to Lystra, and there Paul was stoned and left for dead. In Philippi, Paul and Silas were beaten publicly, thrown into prison, put their feet in stocks. In Thessalonica, a mob came up and arose to attack the house of Jason, because that's where they thought where some of the, uh, the people were. They thought maybe Paul was there. And the whole city authority said, these men who have come to upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another King Jesus. And basically, they forced Paul again out of town. In Berea, the enemies of the Gospel agitated and stirred up the crowds. Paul was driven out of that city. In Corinth, the influence of the Gospel is enough to bring the leaders before Gallio, the proconsul of the city, accusing the disciples of worshiping God contrary to the law. And these instigations, by the way, were, were most often stirred by the Jews who were jealous of people coming to the Messiah who know He wasn't the Messiah and trying to pull them back exactly like it's happening in Hebrews. Trying to instigate and stir up this persecution. It came really from the fruit of the Gospel. And when it came, the leaders bore the brunt of the persecution. It's how it always is, right? When there's, there's persecution, the government will always, always, always go after the leaders first. Not the people in the pew. And in verse 7, I think that's what he's talking about over there in chapter 13. Things are hard. The Jews are trying to pull you back in their Judaism. But remember who led you. And, and through faith, they remain faithful until the end. So imitate their faith. Press on in their faith. In fact, even I think it could be here, even to martyrdom. Consider how they died. Consider how they were imprisoned. Consider how they were exiled. And see how they kept their faith. And you press on in yours. And then the premise is this. If, they, if what they taught was able to sustain them through the greatest of trials, you see that fruit there, it's able to sustain you through the greatest trial of life also, right? And so you say, what's the key? How were they able to endure? Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the core of what the leaders believed, but the core of what the leaders taught they believe in the same Jesus I'm calling you to believe in. And this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, the way to God, a better leader than Moses, a better priest than Aaron, gives better rest than Joshua, gives a better covenant based upon a better sacrifice, brings us into a better tabernacle. And the leaders of the people taught Jesus Christ is the way to God, who atoned for our sins, who sat down at the right hand of God, whoever lives to make intercession for us, who will safely bring us into His heavenly kingdom. And that's what they taught. And Jesus Christ, even it says here, in verse 8, is unchangeable. That's the emphasis. 
that the one they followed is still the one I'm calling you to follow. And that, that's been true in Hebrews. Back in chapter 1, how, how the book began. Speaking of Jesus, it reads this, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They, that is heaven and earth, will perish, but you remain. And they all become old like a garment, like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you, Jesus, are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Here's Jesus, the Creator of the world, for all time, through whom the heavens and the earth was made. And though the heavens and the earth will roll up like a scroll, will be changed like a garment when the new heavens and the new earth comes, Jesus Christ is the same. His years will never end. He existed before creation of the world and He'll be here long after the creation is destroyed and we get a new creation. And throughout the entire time, He's the same. He's not going to diminish in power. He's not going to diminish in strength. He's not going to diminish in influence or authority. His love for us will be there. He's going to continue to pray for us. As verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So yesterday probably has visions back to before time began, but may refer to the incarnation when He took on flesh and blood, lived a perfect life, and died for our sins to bring us to God. Today probably speaks of His present duties. Right now, He's sitting down. I'm about to sit on His knees. He's praying for us is what He's doing. He is the great High Priest offered Himself in this life. The High Priest is the one who who brings us access to God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the priest. And, and not only bringing us to God by His sacrifice, He's also praying for us. And He does this continually. Hebrews 7.25 Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Yesterday and today and forever refers to His role in eternity. The kingdom, the reigning King in His kingdom when everything is under His feet, the host of heaven worshiping the Lamb upon the throne. So this is talking about and those who went before you, who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, who endured. They were looking to Jesus. And since He never changes, we're called to do the same. And the same Jesus that helped them be faithful until the end is the same Jesus who will help you all to be faithful in the end. So remember your leaders and imitate their faith. My second point. Not only remember the leaders, remember their teaching. So don't be carried away. That is, remember the teaching of those who led you, right? And don't be carried away when something else comes along. When someone comes along and says, you want to get to God? Well, here are the three things you need to do. Here's the steps you need to do. You want to be close with God? Well, say these things. You want to really please God? Well, eat only these things or behave in this way. And when someone comes along and says something else other than trust in Jesus and His sacrifice alone, then know it's not the truth. Don't follow it. Don't be carried away by it. Don't be enraptured by it. Don't be fatuated by it. That's what verse 9 is saying. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. There's lots of strange teachings today. There's always been lots of strange teachings today. The New Testament epistle is filled with false teachings. Um, just Think about it. Every epistle, in fact, the, the catalyst for almost every epistle is false teaching. It's mentioned all but just a few. Varied and strange. Don't be carried away by them. And then the particular situation here is addressed here a little bit when you, when you see here that it says, 
For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, to which those who were so occupied were not benefited. There's something about eating here in this verse. The particular danger there about, about eating. And, and uh, you all know the book of Hebrews. Primarily, the big pressures from, from the Jews trying to pull these people back into law, trying to pull them away from Christ and say, come back here. And probably the danger they're talking about here is to come back to the ceremonial laws, as the NIV translates this. It's the ceremonial foods. The foods prescribed in the law. You can read about them in um, Leviticus 11. We won't this morning. But you can do that. And I think there are some in the first century arguing that you need to, to keep the ceremonial diet. Right? Only eat these things, right? Don't eat, don't eat those things, but only these things, which God says to eat. Then you really please Him. You want to, you want to get a better, higher plane of a spiritual life than do that. But the follower of Jesus know that we're not bound to such a, a law. In speaking to the disciples, Jesus said, Do you not understand? Whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him. It might make you fat, right? It might make you sick, but it's not going to defile you morally. Because it does not go into a heart. It goes into a stomach and is eliminated. In doing so, Jesus declared all foods clean. But let me tell you, the law dies hard. You remember in Acts chapter 10 when Peter received the vision of the sheet coming down and the unclean animals and God told him to eat? He said, never, I've never done that before. Just teaching him about, well, associate with the Gentiles. And it was hard. It had to come three times even before he would begin to understand. And he went with some reluctance to Cornelius. Even if you remember reading the text there, it's almost like I was impelled. The Spirit told me and so I didn't want to be disobedient, so I went. But had, oh, had there not been a supernatural experience of a vision, I'm not sure he would have gone. Such, such it is. Laws die hard. And some were saying that the eating the right foods did matter. And that's why I love the rebuttal here in verse 9, where it says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Right? It's not by foods. It's by grace that we are strengthened. You see how well those did who they're strengthened by foods? It says, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. There's no benefit in their foods. Rather, where was the benefit? The benefit was by grace. They were strengthened by grace. You want to have a strong heart and a strong spirituality, then strengthen it by grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, The grace of God has appeared. And think about what this grace teaches us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's grace that teaches us how to live. It's grace that teaches us to live sensibly. How to live righteously. How to live godly. How to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You want to teach and train your kids and move them to godliness and righteous desires? Lavish them with love. That's what God says. It's the grace that does that. The grace of God instructs us in the way of holiness and spurs us on to love and obedience. A couple of days ago, I put on my blog two sentences. One's the way of Judaism and legalism and the way of most world religions and the other is the way of Christ. I want to read them and I want you to think about them and say which one is, which one is right. Which one is my life? We all have need to continually readjust where our life is. first sentence is this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Second one is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. 
got this from our small group curriculum this past summer. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's the first one. That's the way false teachers would have you go. Obey God and He'll accept you, but if you disobey God, you won't be accepted. Or, as it flushes out in verse 9, eat the ceremonial foods and then God's favor will shine on you. If you don't eat the foods, right? if you delve into that pork or you eat some of that shrimp, you better watch out because God's going to get you. That's religion of the world. That's not Jesus. It's not the Gospel. The Gospel is the other way around. It's not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And notice that obedience and acceptance are both there. But the order makes all the difference in the world. See, that second way is the way of the Gospel. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. We're accepted in Christ through faith. As a result, we willingly follow His commands. We are thankful followers. And food, by the way, doesn't have anything to do with it. Rather, it's grace. God has given us the greatest gift of all, His Son. Better than any angel, better than any Old Testament figure. He came and died for our sins, became our high priest, brought us to God. We simply need to believe in Jesus. Believe that He accomplished the work of redemption. Believe that He has forgiven us all our transgressions. And when you believe that and embrace that, your heart will be strengthened you will have the obedience of faith, right? The obedience which is, which is driven by and empowered by faith. And your obedience will be of a different kind than just mere obey and then you'll be accepted. Eating food, you won't be benefited by that. But being strengthened by grace, you will be benefited. So church family, listen, don't pull away from the Gospel. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Don't be carried away by those who would teach that. But follow your true spiritual leaders and remember their teaching. Because those who consume themselves with laws and regulations and rituals will not be benefited. In fact, not only will they not be benefited, they will have no part in Christ. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. In other words, if you're serving the Old Covenant, you have no right in the New Covenant. When this letter was written, it appears the temple had not yet been destroyed by the Romans. happened in A.D. 70. And the central portion of the Jewish faith, the sacrifices and the priests and the smoke and the incense was all in high gear. It was continuing on. And as people sinned, they'd still, during the writing of this, would bring their sacrifice to the temple and give it to the priest. The priest then, in turn, would take it would slaughter the animal and would offer up the bodies, whether it's bulls or goats or turtle doves, up to the Lord. The feasts and festivals still went on. Passover, Yom Kippur. And the author is saying, you can't have a part of the Jewish system and a part of Christ because, well, they're, they're, they're posed. Like, like one, is, one is the better and one is the least. And if you put them up parallel... The ones who, as it says in verse 10, right? We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. If you're serving the tabernacle, if you're subservient to the ways of the Old Testament, the New Covenant will be of no benefit to you. Because Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. When the Old Testament was fulfilled, it's no longer needed. It became obsolete like an expired coupon. Or like an old computer. Or like old tires. They had their function in their day, but now we're done. 
Children, I've got a picture there of, um, it's not my exact computer, it's my first computer. It's Apple II Plus, 48K of memory. <laughs> I was rocking. You know, I popped it out recently, maybe a year ago or so, and it still works. But you know what? It's obsolete. And uh, because it's been fulfilled and surpassed by better things. And the difference between my Apple II Plus computer and my computer I have now is just a little bit representative of how much greater Jesus is than the Old Covenant. If you're serving the Old Covenant, lifting up as King, you have no part in the New. In fact, because the Old has become obsolete, that's what... Look, turn back. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. This is just after discussion about the, the New Covenant. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 7. If that first covenant, meaning the covenant that God made with Moses, if that had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. In other words, if the law of Moses had no faults, no reason for a new. But it had faults. And particularly, even the mention of a new covenant is, is the mere thing that demonstrates that this one has faults. When I had my Apple II Plus and had 48K of memory, I didn't realize it had faults. Uh, I thought it was pretty fast, because it was. Maybe we topped by the Commodore 64K, maybe, but didn't have any. But, but then when you talk about this new, then it makes the old one obsolete. And he mentions there the new covenant in verse 8. And he speaks about this new covenant, how different it will be. And then he says, verse 13, again, when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. I do believe these words in verse 13 are anticipating when all of that sacrificial system would become obsolete in A.D. 70. It was just becoming so. God gave a time of transition. He didn't destroy it right away. He gave a generation to work that out. And through the hands of the Romans, He would see fit to terminate the sacrifices that remain silent through today. And it's by design, I believe, because the old covenant is obsolete. There's no more need for sacrifice. No more need for feasts. No more need for festivals. They're fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled at the altar of Christ. Fulfilled at the cross of Christ. Fulfilled when Jesus became a sin offering. And to participate in the Old Testament disqualifies you for the new. In fact, look at verse 10. It says, We have an altar... For which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, but what can we do? We can eat from this altar. That's just a metaphor about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, right? Feeding on Jesus is really the, the metaphor there. Okay, I gotta do a parenthesis, okay? Um, there are some evangelicals who are advocating because of their eschatology a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem so they can start sacrifices again. Maybe you know some of those. Maybe you do that. Funneling money, doing anything they can to start those sacrifices again. Now, those sacrifices may start again, but we ought not to have anything to do with that. To start another sacrifice, to help fund a sacrifice, is an abomination to God. In fact, that's the key. When it says abomination of desolations, that's when the sacrifices stop. And to start them again would be an abomination of desolation. So let's not attribute to that work. Because it says here, it's the Old Covenant. It's bringing the Old Covenant up again. Right? We're going to serve the Old Covenant. If you serve the Old Covenant, you have no part of the New because you've not understood the New. Okay. 
End of parentheses. Let's go back. Verse 10. Look at how definitive it is. Right? If you serve the ark, you have no part. You have no right to eat. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You either embrace Christ and cling to everything in Him alone, or you embrace some other way that you think is better for you. You can't have both though. And this, by the way, is a major, a major point of discussion in the New Testament. If you say, what's the greatest theological difficulty in the New Testament? It's this. It's how does the law of Moses intersect with the New Covenant? And where do they intersect? And how do they intersect? In books of the Bible, like Galatians, are really dedicated to this. Ephesians, if you understand it, is, is really got this in the whole background. We need unity in Christ. We don't need a Jewish church and a Gentile church. We need both come together. It has implications on practices. But in Paul's day, the major discussion was circumcision. And uh, some were saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You see what they're doing? They're serving the law. They're serving the, the altar there. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. And with circumcision, of course, came observance of the law of Moses because it's not just one commandment, it's all the commandments that come in there. And in Acts chapter 15, records the discussion they have. Well, it, do we need people to be circumcised to be saved or not? Circumcision was really the indicator of embracing the law. And uh, Paul writes to the Galatians, says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. As definitive as verse 10 is, is circumcision is what you are trusting in? Are you saying, I've got to have circumcision to be saved? Christ is no benefit to you because you've just nullified the Gospel. Because you said, right, I obey circumcision and therefore I'm accepted. But the Gospel is different. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And if you take circumcision, no benefit. And it says, I utter, I testify to you, this is Galatians 5, verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision... He's under obligation to keep the whole law. And you, who are under obligation to keep the whole law, have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I hope you see the contrast here. You're either justified by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing, or you're severed from Christ. Now, it is interesting also when you read the book of Acts to see how he dealt with circumcision. Is that he had, Paul, he had Timothy circumcised so as not to be an offense to the Jews. But not standing on circumcision. You didn't want to put that in the way unless they stumble over circumcision. You want to stumble over the Gospel. And, and Titus, he didn't compel to be circumcised. So there's some ways in teasing out how all that works. I think the best way is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Everything flows from the fact that we are, are accepted in God. So and that's the teaching of verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, but we can eat from this altar, we who believe and trust in Jesus. And then he takes this eating imagery just a, a little bit further, going pretty um, symbolic, talking in pictures here. Uh, William Barclay called this one of the most difficult sections in all of the book of Hebrews, really, to understand how exactly the imagery comes. And I think the best way is to kind of look at it in general rather than trying to go down to every little piece of what's happening here. But he says this, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Okay, he's referring here back to an Old Testament practice um, where 
sacrifice were burned outside the camp. Now, it's not all sacrifices that were burned outside the camp. There were sin offerings. Uh, I'm sorry. Burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1 were entirely burnt up and um, consumed at the altar. And other sacrifices were offered to the Lord and various portions of sacrifices were to be food to feed the priests. But there were certain sacrifices that said, well, you offer it up to the Lord, then you take the rest, all the entrails and the, the hides, and you burn that outside the camp. It was not to be eaten. And that's true of the sin offering, as described in Leviticus 4, and the offering on the Day of Atonement, which probably is the central focus here. Right? Some of the sacrifice burned inside the tabernacle on the altar. Right? Some of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the holy seat. But then the remains of that was taken outside and burned in a clean place. No eating from that. And then the, the writer here, the book of, of Hebrews, really runs with this imagery. And he says, okay, well, they, they take this sacrifice, they sacrifice it, they offer it a little bit, but they burn it outside the camp. So also, he thinks about Jesus and His sacrifice. And Jesus was sacrificed in a place called the skull, which was outside the city walls where all sacrifices were taking place. You can read about that in Matthew 27. And in this way, being burned outside the camp or suffering outside the camp, He becomes like the sacrifices here mentioned that weren't eaten by the priests. That they weren't eaten. And I think that here's, here's the key of it. He says, therefore, there's no need to trust in the things we eat because even in the Old Covenant, sins were forgiven even when eating didn't take place. Catch that? The fact that they burned it outside the camp, you didn't eat it, priests, and forgiveness is accepted, especially Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, says that even the Old Covenant, there was forgiveness without anything being eaten. Rather, Jesus outside the gate, forgiveness comes through the shed blood of Jesus, not through the things we eat. Look how he says it there in verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's right there, as clear as can be the Gospels. Right? We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They might sanctify the people through His own blood. That's His death on the cross which cleanses us from our sins. So, we trust in Him and our trust in Him we're made pure and righteous before Him. And that's the message of Hebrews, right? According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Chapter 9, verse 22. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It's impossible for them. Hebrews 10, verse 4. We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.19 But, even though we don't eat of Jesus, there still is an eating, what it's talking about in verse 10. We have an altar from which we eat, which they can't eat, but yet it's not the full eating which helps. And so you can fangle all those things together and I've done the best I can. But we get the cry of application here in verse 13. So, this is like, therefore, here's the application. Let us go out to Him outside the camp. Again, taking the same imagery, bearing His reproach. For here, we don't have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Ties back really to verse 7, which we're called to remember our leaders, right? Remember how their lives turned out and we remember how their life is worthy to be imitated. And when applied to Jesus, how did His life turn out? Kids, what happened to the life of Jesus? Did it turn out really well for him? No. What happened to Jesus? What happened, Ruthie? He, he died on the cross. That's right. They killed him on a cross. Good job, Ruthie. Didn't turn out well from a human standpoint, 
I mean, Jesus was there. He went out of the city, died as a criminal between two robbers, shamed by the very nation of Israel. He came to save. He came into His own. His own did not receive Him. He came to lost sheep of the house of Israel and they turned their backs on Him. And the call for us is to do the same as Jesus. Let us go out and bear the reproach. Because He was on the cross. I mean, they were yelling at Him. They were, they were talking to Him about all the bad things that are true. You claim to be king. Why don't you come down from the cross? He saved others. Why don't He save Himself? And we're to go out and bear that same reproach to willingly embrace non-Christians ridiculing us for our faith. Let's stand for Jesus. Live like our Master. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. When the Jews would arise and call people back to the sacrifices, they'd probably get called names. Come back! Come back! You're, you're, you're trusting in a vain hope. Your Jesus is dead. You're forsaking the way of our ancestors. You're foolish. Why are you doing that? The call is to be like Jesus and to press on and, and to bear their reproach and to willingly take that because Jesus is better than anything. See, they're saying lies because He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And their hope is not foolish. Their hope is a, a reasoned hope, which is a, it's a good hope. And that's how Jesus went to the cross. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross in full knowledge of what was going on. He knew His trial was unjust. He knew He could have fought. He could have stayed off the cross if he had wanted to in a human sense. He could have appealed to his heavenly Father had twelve legions of angels dispatched to rescue him. But he said, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? And the Scriptures were overriding his, his sense of what should be done. He said, not my will, but your will. Your will is a Scripture that I die. But he knew full well what was happening, how they unjustly accused him. As he said to Pilate, my kingdom is now this world. If my kingdom were this world and my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to them. But as it is, my kingdom is now this realm. I have a different realm of a kingdom, but if I wanted, I could take this realm and we could overcome this. But that's not, that's not my, my call. And as Jesus willingly went to the cross so He'd see His offspring and be satisfied, justifying the many bearing their iniquities, so also are we to bear that same reproach. Our kingdom is now this world. And we ought not to live for the here and now. Rather, we ought to live, as it says in verse 14, for the city which is to come. If you notice, back when the persecution came in chapter 10, verse 34, this idea of a, of a city which is to come, this, this uh, future city was what helped them and sustained them. It says in verse 34, they endured, having property taken from them, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. It's what endured Abraham, right? They're looking for the promises that were yet unfulfilled. They they acknowledged they were strangers and exiles upon the earth. Giving testimony to that. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 14. Those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country which they had gone out, Egypt, they could have returned. But as soon as they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. And that's the city here that is to come. That is verse 34 of chapter 10. The better possession in a lasting city. You know, in this world, things break. I can list for you many things in my house which are broken right now. I haven't prepared this, but I think I could just off the top of my head. 
talk about a, a carpet in the entryway that needs to be fixed. There's a toilet upstairs that leaks, drips just a little bit that I need to fix. There's paint on the wall that needs to be fixed. Um, you know, the drawers don't come out totally in some places. The, the furniture that we have needs some new soles of them so they don't mess up the wood floor, which is already messed up and we need to mess up linoleum floor. We need a wood floor because it's not messed up. We have, we have, uh, liners underneath our, our doors that aren't airtight. So wind comes in, so we put a towel there. We've got a, a drafty, um, fireplace which we have to plug up every night. Men, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you just go on and on and on and on about all the things that need to be fixed. Because things break. But praise be to God, though, that where's our hope? Our hope isn't here. It's for the city which is to come. It's for the, the lasting city. right? We're seeking, it says in verse 14, the, the city which is to come. As it says in chapter 10, verse 34, that lasting possession. Um, the fighter verse this week, for those who are memorizing it, is First uh, Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. And verse 4, it says that we um, are looking with this hope to obtain an inheritance. This inheritance has three characteristics. It's imperishable, and it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's imperishable. It's not going to break. It's undefiled. It is pure. It's clean. It doesn't get dirty. And it's unfading. It never loses its luster. You don't have to do maintenance on the thing. And that's what we look forward to. And that's what our city is like. And that's what we can, we can embrace. And that's one way, by the way, to, to bear His reproach is to, is to face the ridicule of people. It shows we're not living for the here and now. We're living for the then. Because we know it's true in our hearts. And one way that we can do that is by celebrating the Lord's Supper as Jesus told us to. He said, as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's an opportunity to eat the bread and drink the cup and say our hope isn't here. Our hope isn't even in eating and drinking, but it's an opportunity for us to, in a physical different way, to reflect upon the death of Christ and say that our hope and our trust is there. And so I, I just ask you, are, are you following the, the right leaders? Maybe there are some leaders in your life who you know who have uh, endured a great conflict of sufferings, have persecuted well, have gone well through persecution. Um, you know, there, there is a way that martyrdom helps stir people in faith. And, and maybe you know of some martyrs even, you think. Or, or maybe you know some people personally who endured some great conflict of suffering. Just think about them and, and what sustained them. I would encourage you to, to imitate them, to remember your leaders, to imitate them, and remember their teachings so you're not carried away in falseness. And I would say that the teaching we need to hold on to is Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone died, buried, resurrected, raised, and ascended. That is our only hope.